This morning, Dan's teaching on the story of the prodigal son, and he asked me to read the story for you. I'm reading from Luke chapter 15, and I'm reading from the message. The story of the lost son. And then he said, that's Jesus, there was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to the father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the young son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything that he had. After he'd gone through all of his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to feel it. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry he would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. That brought him to his senses. He said, all those farm hands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. He got right up and went home to his father. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, he ran out embraced him, and kissed him. The son started his speech, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't even listening. He was calling to his servants, Quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then get a prize-winning heifer and roast it. We're going to have a feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive, given up for lost and now found. And they began to have a wonderful time. All this time, the older son was out in the field. When the day's work was done, he came in. As he approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. Calling over to one of the houseboys, he asked what was going on. He told him, your brother has come home. Your father has ordered a feast because he has him home safe and sound. So what's interesting about the story that was just read is that it's typically called the prodigal son. But if you read what is before it and what comes after it, you're going you're gonna to learn something. And that is that it's not really about the son who went away. The story really is about the older brother. That's, who, that's really what the story is about. And uh, it's the older brother that we learn from, and it's the older brother probably that a lot of us in this room can identify with in a wrongful way, but it is true. It's just the, the way this, this narrative happens. So the context of, this, of the story is this, is that Jesus has been questioned by the religious crowd about eating with sinners. Jesus loved to eat with sinners. Jesus loved to hang out with prostitutes and people of reputation of, that everybody else rejected. Jesus would be drawn to those kinds of people. When everybody else was running away, he'd be running too. And as a result, the religious leaders of that day hated that because they because they were legalistic, they were judgmental, they, they were arrogant in a, in a lot of ways. And uh, so Jesus teaches a series of stories. And he's speaking to these Pharisees. And the, the point of this particular story, we don't actually get to until we get to the older brother. 
And the, the younger brother is a character in the story, and certainly that, I can relate to the younger brother, but he tells the story very intentionally, very purposeful, so that we would hear the story and be deeply convicted in our own self-righteousness. So just resonate on that for just a minute, and uh, then we'll move along. So there are two thoughts before we get, actually get into the story today. There are two thoughts. Both sons... <clears throat> excuse me, were given their inheritance. Both sons received from the father what was due to them. He divided the inheritance, gave them both what was coming. And there are many who uh, were delivered from their sins. This particular younger brother was delivered from many of his sins. But the fact is, and there's many in this room that can say the same thing, but are destroyed by the sins of the older brother. So many in this auditorium, many listening online, have come to a faith in Jesus Christ, but have, have drifted back into a state of law-keeping, rule-keeping, judgmentalism, Phariseeism. And so it is that that Jesus is speaking to. And my prayer isn't, isn't today, isn't to, to make you feel bad. I just want you to have the same experience of repentance that the younger brother had in your own personal life. So how does that happen? that we come to faith, we come to Jesus, and then we drift away. And by the way, a vast majority of the New Testament was written to believers who had drifted away from the grace of God. So Paul writes to them and reminds them of this deep grace that they were saved in. So how is it that you and I can come to the cross, we can kneel before the cross, and we can, you know, we can have this conversion in our spirit, in our mind, in our soul, and we can be on fire for Jesus. And then life takes over. And what happens is, is that we drift back into a mindset of religion and not relationship, rules and not grace. How is it that that happens? And the answer is we are by nature drifters. That's the truth. For me to continue to walk in grace and grow in grace, which is my command, by the way. The Bible commands us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So for me to grow in grace, I've got to be very intentional, and I've got to recognize that I, I have this propensity to just drift. If I, don't, if I don't fight against it, I will drift away from this amazing grace and this amazing story that God is writing in, inside of me. So let me see if I can help you grab a hold of how that happens. So on a very warm, sunny Southern California day, there was a, name, a guy by the name of Richard Van Pham, and he had a sailboat, and he set out on his sailboat to go from Long Beach to Catalina Island, which would normally take on a sailboat about three hours. But in the middle, right in the middle of his time sailing from Long Beach to Catalina, he encountered a storm that he wasn't expecting. And this is what happened to him. He was lost at sea for three months in this storm. And when he was rescued, when he was rescued, the tides had carried him 2,500 miles away. Now, just to put that in perspective, it would be like this. It'd be like you and I going out for a drive tonight at, in Reno and ending up in Washington, D.C. That's what it would be like. I mean, that's how far the tides pushed him. And, and, you know, his sails were broken, so, so he, there was nothing he could do. He, he just had to go with it. And this is what I'm going to say to you. That's you and I. When you and I come to Jesus, if you and I aren't actively 
exercising faith in him, the tides of this world will push us to legalism, to law-keeping, to self-righteousness. And that, my friend, is exactly where the older brother finds himself in the story. So with that in mind, let's start with the younger guy. Let's start with this guy. He's lost, and he doesn't know his way yet. So let's start with him. And we're going to start in the wild years. How many of you all have had wild years in your life? Okay, come on. I have. That was my, I was not raised in the church, and I was that guy, I was that guy that if you would have brought me home as a boyfriend and introduced me to your parents, they would have said, hey, move on. You know, that, that would have been me. That's, that's, my, that's my part in the story. And so, so when you begin to think about that, we all have, at some degree, we all have a story where we got lost in the process. So let's just pick up this guy's story. It, uh, in chapter 15, Luke chapter 15, verse 13, it says, so the father has divided the inheritance and now the younger brother decides, you know what, I'm moving out. Living at home isn't for me. I've got to figure out, I've got to figure out life on my own. Ever heard that story? I've got to find my way in life and so that's what he does. So a few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land and there he wasted all his money in wild living. Whatever that means. I don't know what that means in that culture in that day, but that was my story. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods that he was feeding the pigs with looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. So here he is. He's alone. He's lost. He's at the end of his rope. He's realized that what the excitement of leaving wasn't what he was experiencing anymore. And by the way, the wild years always start out exciting but end in futility. That's how they end up. So if you're 16 in this audience today, listen to me carefully. Listen to this because you can avoid a lot of pain. You know, I know that it seems exciting. I know that what's out there feels like it's what I want to experience. It always is exciting, but, that, but the wildlife always ends in the same way and it always ends in futility at some point. So now we continue in the story. That was just a commercial, by the way. <laughs> so let's talk about his conversion. So in verse 17, it says, when he, he's, he's, you know, alone, he's lost. He's lost his way. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know where he's going to get his next meal. And it says in verse 17, when he finally came to his senses. Because here's the reality. He lost his mind. That's what happens to us. We don't know it. Everybody else around us can see it going, what are you, stupid? What are you doing? I mean, those are the kind of things that people around you, when you're lost, everybody around you can see that you're lost but you. And so the Bible says here, when he came to his senses, and I love that phrase because that's exactly what happened. And so he comes to his senses and he realizes, you know what? My father is benevolent to his, to his workers and they get treated better than, than what these servants are being treated. And if I just go back to my father, I'm not going to ask anything. I'm not going you know, to have this spirit of entitlement. I, I spent all my money. I'm going to go and I'm just going to ask my dad for a job. And I'll, go, I'll work for him. And you know, if he'll take me in as a worker, then that's what I'll do. And so that was his plan, just like you and I oftentimes create plans for our life. 
He created a plan for his life. He had a business plan. And, uh, and, you know, so let's just see how that works out for him. So while he was still a long way off, he's going home. While he was a long way off, his father saw him coming. Now, stop for just a second there and let's think about that. Why would the father see him coming? Because my take on this passage is this, is the father probably went all the time and looked. The father was waiting for the return of this, of this son that had spent all of his inheritance. And then it says about the father, filled with love and compassion. And by the way, if you haven't put this story together, the father represents the father in heaven. He was filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son. Notice who initiates the relationship. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. That was a position of honor. To put somebody in a robe was a position of honor. Get a ring for his finger. That was a position of royalty. Sandals for his feet and kill the calf. The calf, he must have been preparing this calf for some time because in some versions it's called the fatted calf. And so it says, and kill the calf. Uh, we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now it's found. And so the party begins. That's where the true party begins is when you return to the Father. That's where you think you can go out and party and have a great time. Maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that works for you for a time. But the true party happens when you actually, actually return to the Father and he kills the fatted calf and he celebrates with you. So the party began. And I don't know how long it lasted, but it probably lasted for some time. And then we get introduced to the most important character in the story. The story the character in which the story is written for, and the story, this is what Jesus wants us to know about this story. We come to the older brother because that's what Jesus is trying to get to because remember, he's talking to Pharisees and he's talking to people that are trying to trick him in his words and he's talking to people that had self-righteousness and indignation and literal hatred in their lives for people that they deemed unworthy. So now the story turns to the story of the older brother. And it is a very powerful story. And so let me start with what was good about the older brother before I tell you about what was bad with him. So here we go. First of all, the older brother was loyal. He stayed with his father. He didn't take the inheritance. He got an inheritance too. He stayed there. He worked on the farm. He was diligent. He was working in the field when his brother returned. He worked all day until evening until, you know, even though he probably heard some of the shouting and the joy, he, st he stayed in the field until, until the evening and uh, he was faithful. That's the, that's the greatness of who this older brother was. And here is what the reunion of the older brother and the younger brother should have looked like. Watch this.
Now you would think that's what the older brother would have done, right? Here's my younger brother. He was lost and now he's found. I'm going to have joy in my heart. I'm going I'm to rejoice in the fact that he's back. And, and you would think that that would be what he would do. But what actually happened is recorded for us in verse number 28. It says the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. So he finds out that his younger brother's back. So he just kind of folds his arms and says, that's it. That's I'm done. I'm just going to sit out here in the field all night if I have to, to make a point. And uh, have you ever, let me ask you this question. Let's just be honest here today. Have you ever let anger separate you from the love of God? Have you? You get angry about a circumstance, so you pout. Any pouters here in the audience today? We have two kinds of people, pouters and liars. Because we all pout from time to time. We all do. Come on, let's just admit it. Pastor Dan is right. We all pout from time to time when we don't get our own way. The older, the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out. I mean, this, is, this father is amazing. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, all these years I have slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. I don't think that was true, but he said it. And in all that time, you never gave me even one goat for a feast with my friends. I mean, he is angered. So the question then is, what went wrong? Because the father gave him everything he needed. The father gave him his inheritance. The father was kind to him. The father was loving to him. So what went wrong in this relationship? What happened to cause this young man or this older brother to be, to be so angry? Well, I think one of the first things that happens to him and also therefore happens to us is that he became entitled. He became, he began to, you know, with all this that he had, with all that he possessed, he then began to, you know, begin to read the clippings about himself and he began to be entitled. And uh, the fact is, is that that's the culture that you and I live in. You and I, smile at me when I say this to you, you and I live in an, an entitled world and you and I, I'm going to speak to the boomers in the crowd. Listen to me carefully. You were entitled and you raised entitled children. That's just who we are. You know, how do I know that? Because when I go to the grocery store and I have to wait five minutes in line to check out because a checker is slow, I am thinking, what a wonderful woman that girl is. <laughs> Not exactly. I'm thinking, hey, do you, don't they have a college or something to teach you how to, you know, to do this? I don't know. But, you know, because I'm entitled. Or if I get caught up in a traffic jam in Reno for five minutes. That's our traffic jam, just in case you didn't know that. I get, you know, slowed down for five minutes. Or, God forbid, there's a wreck and it's 15 to 20. You know, and I'm going... Hey, you know, I've got places to be and I've got somewhere to go. So can you guys just all get out of my way so that I can just go through here? And uh, here's the reality. The, you know, I've had to come to realize that the world doesn't revolve around me. It doesn't revolve around you. Have you come to realize that yet? We say that. We grin. We laugh. We say, yeah, it's true. Until something happens in our life. And then we go right back to that entitlement. And uh, I read a story this past week about... Um, a lady who gave, went, to a wedding, went to a wedding and she gave what she thought was a, was a great gift. They, they, they asked for cash gifts because they were going to spend it on their honeymoon. She went to the wedding and gave $100 to the couple. 
And then about three days later, she got a letter in the mail saying that wasn't enough money. I'm, I'm not making this stuff up. You can't make this stuff up. I guess you could, but it's not made up. It's true. And, you know, she posted it on a site and said, hey, what, how do I respond to this? I would have said, can I have my $100 back? But, <laughs> but that would have been just me. You know, that probably isn't the right response. But, I, you know, I'm thinking, isn't that the ultimate, the, you know, the, you know, the kind of the pinnacle of entitlement in our culture? Somehow, some way that I think that you should do more for me. That's entitlement. You know what else is entitlement? When you think your church should do more for you. It, oh, that was a jab in the side, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, is it not true? Because I think we're servants of Jesus. He's not our servant. So we should come here to serve and not to be served. That's why Jesus came to the world. He came into this world not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a, as a ransom for all. So that, I mean, that's a pretty powerful thing. And so entitlement is a major problem in our life, in his life, in the, you know, in the older brother's life, and in our life. And it is it's just a reality that we live in. And it hinders our ability to hear the voice of God. It hinders our ability to serve him, to love him, to, for God's power to rest on him. By the way, if that's for me, I'm, te I'm teaching, so I can't answer that. I'm just kidding. I am just kidding. I am. Don't. It happens to me all the time. That's why I'm teasing you. It happens to me all the time. What else happened to this older brother? He, he became angry. His entitlement made him angry at the circumstances. Think back about the last time you were angry. And my guess is, is that entitlement had something to do with it along the way. That somehow, some way, somebody disappointed your expectations of them. That's entitlement. Somehow, that's entitlement. So he became angry, and then he became very self-righteous. The older brother said, listen, Dad, you're wrong. I'm right. You should have given me a party. You didn't, and uh, I just don't get that. And he became very self-righteous. When we are self-righteous... It is because we have the wrong measuring stick. That's what happens. I have the wrong measuring stick. If you want to be cured of self-righteousness, measure yourself by the person of Jesus instead of the person sitting next to you or in front of you or in back of you. Measure yourself by Jesus if you want to get rid of self-righteousness. Because every time I put my life up against Jesus' life, I get my life put in its proper perspective, right? So, and then... He became jealous of his brother. But what's interesting is, is that his brother had nothing that he didn't have, and yet he was jealous. He became, became self-centered and thankless. And that's the culture kind of that you and I live in, self-centered and thankless. By the way, if you think the world revolves around you, it doesn't. It revolves around me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But we live in a world where we think that somehow, some way, I sit, well, I don't sit on the throne, but I sit right next to it. And that everybody around me should, their job is to make me happy and joyous and God forbid that they don't. I read this past week about a runaway shopping cart. It rams right into a car, you know, in a shopping center. And so the car owner rolls his window down. The, the guy is running frantically to try to catch up with the cart. And the car owner asks the shopper, how bad is the damage? 
I don't even want to look. How bad is the damage? And he says, well, I broke at least three dozen eggs. <laughs> it's all about us, right? It's all about us. By the way, the grace of God, listen to this carefully, the grace of God runs counter to everything intuitive within us. That's why we drift. Because we think somehow, someway, and I think it's because of the, of, the, of the culture that we live, we think somehow we have to pick ourselves up by the bootstrap and that, you know, fix things and work harder. And, and I'm telling you, that's contrary to the grace of God. The desire to earn, to merit, to purchase God's grace is woven into my DNA, and I'm telling you, it doesn't work. I instinctively try to push my way into God's presence by rule-keeping, by a false sense of righteousness, by a sense of just having the wrong perspective. Because everything that I have, everything that I am, everything that I'm going to accomplish in the future is done by the grace of God. It's all grace. It is the grace of God. Uh, yeah, I'm saved by grace, but after getting up off of my knees, after that experience, what I do is I go into a salvation maintenance mode, which normally is, think, is this kind of thinking that my salvation hinges upon me doing all the right things, saying the right words, being the right person. And so it is contrary to us to think about the grace of God. When King Louis the Fourteenth, let me just explain who he was. He was one of France's greatest kings. He saw his armies crush the world. And when he personally got a defeat by, by the English, <clears throat> he went into his closet, and this is what is reported that he said. He said, how could God do this to me after all I have done for him? How could God do this to me? after all that I have done for him. And I thought about that for a while when I read that quote, and I'm thinking, that kind of sounds familiar to some things that I've said. And I'm just going to be transparent with you this morning. Not that I'm not always transparent, but I'm going to be real transparent. When many of you know this, many of you don't, I got a really debilitating illness about nine, ten years ago. I was deathly sick, almost died, and uh, none of, I spent tens of thousands of dollars. There's no doctors that could figure out what it was. I finally figured out what was wrong with me and figured out what the cure was, and here I am today. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that struggle, I can remember being in my backyard, you know, just, I can't, I can't sit for five minutes. I can't think, I can't work, I can't do anything. And uh, I can remember saying to God, why me, God? Why me? Why is this happening to me? And that, I didn't stay there long. I didn't stay there long, but that's where I went. Why is this happening to me? And so it's easy to sit in a church and criticize other people for having entitlement and having this sense of, of self-righteousness and lack of grace in, in their lives. But when you get, when the rubber hits the road, when you get to that place where you don't know what side is up, it's so easy to say, why, God? Why? And that lasted for just a short period of time. 
And then I realized that whatever God wanted, he was going to do anyway, and that I just needed to worship him and uh, that I needed to serve him. And that's what I did to the best of my ability. That's I turned my thinking around and I began to serve him in, the, in any way that I could. And I stopped asking the question, why? Because why is not the right question. What is the right question? What do you want me to do, God? What is it that you want? How am I to steward this illness? How am I going to steward this thing that you brought into my life? This natural disaster, this financial collapse. How am I supposed to steward that, God? What am I supposed to do with that? That's the question that we should be asking. So with that in mind, I want you to compare the attitude of Louis XIV with John Newton. You all know who John Newton is? You probably do, you just don't know who he is. John Newton is the guy that wrote Amazing Grace. You know that little ditty that we sing? Even on television, they sing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound, saved a wretch like me. Well, let me tell you a little bit about John Newton. John Newton was a slave trader. He was, he was a wild one. He was brutal. He was, he, was, he was all in it for the money. And God connected with him in a way that changed his life completely. And uh, he, I mean, he had this life-changing transformation out of which he became a devoted follower of Jesus the rest of his life, stopped the slave trade, moved into a different kind of thinking in every way. And this is what he wrote. He says, if I ever reach heaven, this is the guy that wrote Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He said, if I ever reach heaven, I... We'll, I think I will find three wonders there. The first wonder is to meet some people that I didn't think were going to be there. That's the first wonder. The second wonder is I'm going to probably, I thought Pastor Dan was going in. Where's he? <laughs> second wonder is I'm going to probably miss some people that I thought for sure was going. And the third wonder is that I'm there. That's what the guy who wrote Amazing Grace said. Now compare that to Louis. God, how could you do this to me? To it's a wonder that I could ever get into your courts, God. That's where God wants us to be. And that's where the, that's where the younger brother came. And, uh, and then right before his death, this is what John Newton wrote again. He says, I am not what I ought to be. Anybody relate to that? I'm not what I ought to be. There's improvement I could really make in my life. I'm not what I wish to be. I wish that I was better. I wish that I was, I wish that I had a better understanding, a greater ability to worship you, God, a better capacity to do right. And, um, and I'm not what I hope to be. That's, he wrote those three things. Then he says, I can truly say, I'm not what I once was. I was a slave to sin and, and to Satan. I can heartily join with the apostles and acknowledge by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's when you understand grace. You understand grace when you abandon your entitlement and you recognize that there's nothing in this life that you have that doesn't come by the grace of God. Not your skill, not your talent, not your wisdom, not your smarts. It comes by the grace of God. That's where the younger brother got to completely emptied, and that's where you and I need to come, get, to get to. And a final question, with which brother do you identify? Both were lost, only one was found. 
And I'm guessing that in my story, I identify with, I identify with both. I was lost and then I was found and then I found myself drifting into legalism and becoming self-righteous and arrogant. So I identify with both. Both in the story were lost. Only one was found. Both brothers needed repentance. Only one had repentance. And so my counsel to you is if you're the older brother in the story, if you're the older brother in the story, you need to repent today, turn to God, seek his grace, and seek his mercy. That's my counsel for everyone listening as well. The difference between the two is that one ran to the Father and the other one didn't. One ran away from the Father in anger. One ran to the Father and embraced the Father and it was a beautiful embrace. Which one are you? Because my guess is there's lots of people in this room today that need to run to the Father who opens his grace wide open you just need to run to the Father right now. And if you don't think you need to run to the Father, it's evidence that you need to run to the Father. You get that? Because you're thinking, yeah, I'm okay. If you're thinking, yeah, I'm okay, you're not okay. You're just not. We need to run to the Father. Father, I come before you this day. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for this story, God. And my prayer is that all of us here would repent and turn to the Father and embrace his powerful and mighty love for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.